Greetings, ladies and managers, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales from Outer Space, where I take stories from across the internet and read them for your entertainment. This particular story is called Jess, written by Kay Cern. Jess leaned against the bulkhead door and led herself slant to the floor, her wrench dropping from her numb fingers with a clang. Her heart pounded, her ears rang, and she hurt all over. She was exhausted. More, she felt wrung out now that the adrenaline was wearing off. She was also smeared all over in a bright green ooze, and her overalls were covered in burns. Plucking off one of those thick, insulated gloves, she stuck a finger in one of the burn holes and felt the raw, blistering skin beneath. Fucking hell, that stings, she swore. It looked like her overalls, designed to protect her from minor shocks and cuts, had managed to absorb a lot of the incoming blast of fire, leaving her with only minor burns and bruises. Thankfully, the aliens had had their weapons set to stun, or she knew that she'd be dead right now. The aliens, she thought, hit her with a jolt. Oh god, this is blood, isn't it? Alien blood! What the feck was I thinking? she asked herself, shaking her head as the memories came rushing back. I'm no super soldier commander. I'm a fecking mechanic. Oh man, I should be so dead by now. She sighed and reached out for the overall pocket where she kept her stim chew, pulled out the mangled packet, popped it one lozenge in her mouth, and began chewing it between her back teeth. Almost immediately, she felt energy returning to her limbs, and her mind felt clearer. Though not technically legal back home, they'd packed her a whole case of the stuff when she'd been assigned the mission. Come on, Jess, get your crap together, girl, she said, trying to psych herself up. Groaning, she pushed herself back to her feet, redonned her glove, picked up her wrench, and took stock of her situation. All right, you're alone on an alien ship full of hostiles, she said aloud to herself. Think, remember your training. Jessica Lovett, born 2158, had been raised a proud citizen of the Oceanic Republic, and like all proud citizens of the Oceanic Republic, she had joined the Defense Force on her 18th birthday. To Jess's parents' relief, her test scores were high enough that the Force decided that she would make a better engineer than a grunt, and she'd spent the next four grueling years, after boot camp of course, studying at the Military Academy on Luna, after which she'd signed on for a 10-year contract for to stick around, working on the Force's shipyards and being shipped from one end of the system to the other, eventually making lieutenant. She worked hard, often harder than the others on her crew, but she had never minded. She enjoyed her work, took pride in it. She felt a strong sense of satisfaction in fixing things, and she had been good at it. She'd even go so far as to say that she was damned good at it. Maybe one of the best, even. So wasn't that surprising that when the spooks went looking for an engineer to join an alien crew, they found Jess. I'm no spy. She had protested at the time. We don't need a spy, the spooks had assured her. Think of it like an exchange program. You learn about their tech, teach them how we do things, make some friends. You'd almost be like a diplomat. And spy for you, she said. We're just asking you to do your job, that's all. They had responded smoothly. The implants will record everything you see and hear. She had wanted to protest further, but the truth was... She had longed to see the insides of the new Stadian ships that had begun visiting the system when their strange designs and faster-than-light engines. Relenting, she'd quickly found herself implanted with the latest ocular and cochlear implants and boarding the Wistful Wanderer. 
Akerang merchant ship under the command of ship captain Olak Gulk, when she immediately dubbed Chief rather than tried to pronounce that mouthful. She had no idea how the arrangement had come about and had never bothered to ask, instead instantly falling in love with the wistful and her crew. Even the cranky, easily flustered Olak. Snapping herself out of her memories, Jess forced herself to focus. Doors and corners, her boot camp instructor had drilled into her. Human beings have a natural tendency to see an empty space and immediately think it's safe. Doors and corners are always dangerous. See the entire room. The room was about ten meters to either side, and lit by the soft purple light that seemed to seep out of the ceiling and walls as if it was too bright to be contained. There was one closed bulkhead door behind her, heavy steel, and another set into the wall opposite. She tried to ignore the beaten, broken alien body scattered about the room and obscene amounts of bright green blood. The door to her back, she knew, opened on empty space and had been where the wistful had been shackled until she'd blown the tether. She figured that meant that she was in some kind of airlock then, with the far door leading further into the alien ship. Not feeling eager to wait around for the aliens to decide to space her, she crossed the room to the other door. Heavy, shiny steel, just like the first. Pink squiggles or symbols glowed above it. She paused at it. Nothing happened. She waved her hands above her head. Nothing happened. Hmm, she hummed. She went through her pockets, stem shoes, a hairband, multi-tool, and her slate. Almost full battery, too. She also had a wrench. She unlocked her slate and looked at the symbols again. Airlock 4 appeared in yellow subtitles across her vision. Helpful, she thought. Just to the left of the door was another of the weird pink symbols. Open close, read the subtitle. She waved her hand over it. Nothing. She poked it. The door slid open. Okay. Was not expecting it to be that easy, she said aloud, finding the sound of her own voice strangely comforting in the otherwise silent ship. Beyond the door ran a long corridor lit with the same purple light, with more doors spaced out periodically to either side. Smears of green blood along the walls and the floor indicated that the aliens had fled her rampage. She tried to real hard not to think about how quiet it was, how much she was already missing the voices of her friends back on the wistful. She wondered briefly if the chief had listened to her and gotten a crew to safety. She hoped so. She felt bad for lying to him, but once she'd blown the tether, she'd realized there was no way back for her. Really? Really didn't think that through? Really, really didn't think that through properly, did ya? She thought to herself. Not sure what else to do. Jess put her slate away and started down the corridor, checking doors as she went. Alien bathroom, alien bedroom, alien shower, alien kitchen. Each was as empty and as boring as the last, if Jess was being honest. She expected an alien slavery ship to be more exciting, more like something out of a sci-fi movie, covered in furs and leather and chains. But so far, it looked pretty much the same as the rooms aboard the Wistful. There were the odd knickknacks and personal mementos, but nothing she hadn't seen before. Eventually, the corner came to an intersection and Jess paused for a moment. From what she could tell, the side passage appeared to slope slightly, the one to the right going up while the one to the left going down. If this were a human ship, she thought, the bridge would likely be up and engineering below. She cursed herself, not for the first time. 
her reckless charge aboard the ship without even so much as looking out a window to see what it looked like first. How? She didn't even know how big it was. Bzzzt. An overhead speaker suddenly crackled, causing Jess to scream and nearly drop a wrench. Alien, can you hear me? A voice asked, Jess's implant helpfully translating to English with only minor delay. Jesus fucking Christ on a bike, mate. She swore and waved her wrench at the ceiling. Damn near gave me a heart attack. Good. You have audio receptors and you understand me. That is very good. The voice replied, sounding somewhat pleased with itself. I must please ask you to surrender or vacate this vessel. Yeah, sure, buddy. Just give me a ride back to Earth and I'll get right out of your hair, Jess replied. Buddy, my name is Monarch, not Buddy, the voice said, and I have no hair. Yeah, yeah, I'm not your buddy, pal, Jess grumbled. Look, I don't want to be here any more than you want me here. But I'm not the one that tried to take my friends and sell them as slaves. Slaves? Yes, we have many slaves. You take anyone you like and you leave, okay? The voice continued. Jess rubbed her forehead with a free hand. Bloody translators, she thought. Sure, they'd be helped to unify most of humanity. But talk about failure to communicate. What species? The voice continued when she didn't respond. I don't want any of your bloody slaves, mate. She snapped. Just take me to the nearest Galactic Council outpost, right? No, no, no. You misunderstand. What species are you? The voice said. We have not seen your kind before. You want to know what I am? Jess said, hefting the wrench over her shoulder. I'm seriously pissed off engineer is what I am. I do not understand. Eek! What are you doing? The voice shrieked as Jess started swinging her wrench against the wall panel. A few good whacks with the practiced eye and the panel popped free revealing the countless wires, tubes, and fiber connections that made up the ship's internal network. She cocked her head as she realized it was almost identical to the wistful. Pulling her slate back out, she plugged it into the exposed panel and, protected by her gloves, began pulling and rerouting cables. The corridor lights flickered and the voice cut out. Thank fuck for that, said Jess, feeling her spirits lift as she replaced the panel and pocketed her slate once more. Whistling tunelessly, she continued on down the corridor. The odd smear of green blood where an injured alien had leaned against the wall encouraged her on until she came to another bulkhead door. Shrugging, Jess pressed the pink squiggle beside it and the door hissed open. Jess immediately felt her blood turn to ice. Steel cages filled the hangar-sized room, cages filled with aliens from all over the galaxy. Most she couldn't even recognize as they stood or sat listlessly, dressed in rags, their eyes dazed. Some wept quietly, but most were silent, spotting children amongst her. Her heart turned hard. The few poor wretches that noticed her scuttled away from the bars in fear as she approached slowly, the wrench clenched in her bone-white knuckles. You! What are you doing? How did you get out of your cage? shouted a slaver from across the room, mistaking her for a prisoner and starting towards her. Jess turned towards him and he froze, rooted to the spot by instincts long buried in animal parts of his brain. If Jess had bothered to ask, Olek Golk would have happily informed his human engineer that he was well aware of her government's reasons for getting her aboard his ship. He wasn't a hatchling after all, and he'd seen dozens of newly uplifted species do the same. In fact, 
Oleg had gone so far as to make the offer to the Earth governments himself and incited something of a bidding war, along with a sizable payday. The wily ship captain had also arranged to get his hands on Jess's service record before he'd allowed her on board. What Jess's record had failed to mention, though, was that the hard-working, loyal, dependable, affable engineer had one wee little fault that had put a halt to her advancement through the ranks. She had something of a temper. Children! was all Jess managed to scream through the rage flooding her veins as she hurled herself on an unfortunate slaver. The slaves screamed and crushed against one another as they desperately tried to put some distance between themselves and the mad woman beating the captain to death with a wrench. Jess would likely have continued beating the alien to a pulp if she wasn't suddenly struck in the shoulder and sent sprawled against the side of the closest cage. Stay down, animal, ordered another slaver from behind her. Pushing herself away from the stained steel bonds, Jess spun with a snarl and smashed her wrench against the alien's head in a spray of blood. Jess's head snapped towards the sound of the more slavers approaching, string cheese sticks her mind offered, as she took in the mess of thin, wriggling arms and legs sprouting from the middle and bottom of a narrow trunk. Three of the aliens, like the ones that had struck her, were armed with heavy batons, needing multiple noodle-like limbs to lift them, while the fourth had an electric prod. The sight of the cruel weapons only further enraged her, and she rushed to the group. The slavers hadn't expected this and reacted slowly, too slowly. Before they could lift their own weapons, Jess was amongst them, her wrench landing sickeningly wet blows with every swing. The last of the slavers screamed and tried to flee, but she was not having it. Hefting her wrench over her head, she wound her arm up and threw it. The slaver hit the ground with a wet smack, green blood oozing from his skull. Human, called a weak voice from behind Jess, and she spun about, fists coming up to meet the next threat. An emaciated-looking Kurang clutched the bars of the nearby cage, staring at her. Jess felt her rage dissipate like an early morning mist before the sun, leaving her feeling weak and shaky. With numb, ooze-covered fingers, she popped another stim chew in her mouth and said, You're talking to me. Do you see any other humans around? The Kerrang laughed, which quickly turned into a hacking cough. Or maybe that was just how a Kerrang laughed. She wasn't sure. She'd never heard the chief laugh, not even when she had left a whoopee cushion in his chair. Jess looked around. The Kerrang was right. There weren't any humans amongst the prisoners, at least not that she could see. Explains why they didn't know what I was, she thought. What's up? Jess asked, unsure of what else to say. The Kurang looked upwards for a second, then back at her in confusion. Up? It asked. What do you want? Jess tried again. Freedom, of course, the Kurang said. I'm a wealthy ship captain. Let me out of here and I will see that you're well rewarded. Jess shook her head. Typical Kurang, always thinking about money, she replied. I'm getting you all out of here. And I don't need no reward. At this, some of the other slaves poked up and whispers began amongst them, picking up volume as they spread until the room was filled with the clamoring aliens begging to be let loose. Whoa, settle down, Jess said, patting the pair with a hand. I can't just let you all out and go get murdered by the noodle aliens. Stay put for now, I'll come back for you. And uh, what did you get yourself murdered by uh, the noodle aliens? The Kerrang inquired, 
Would you leave us to bear the retribution of your captors and your absence? Jess swore and thought about it for a minute. Fine, she said grudgingly. I'll let you out, but you can't leave this room until I come back, okay? And if you don't come back? The Kurang pressed. Then you're on your own, mate, she shrugged. I'll be dead. It only took a few minutes to find the cage controls and only a few more minutes to drag one of the alien corpses over to them when Jess found that they used bio-locks. She retrieved her wrench and was heading for the door when she paused and turned back to the Kerrang. Any idea where the bridge on this bucket might be? She asked. The Kerrang didn't look up from the slaver corpse he was looting as he replied, Go back the way you came and find the way below. Noodles like to keep the deep inside their ships, makes them seal safe. Thanks, sir, said Jess automatically. Then, wait, what did you call them? Noodles, they repeated the Kerrang. Huh, said Jess. I guess that doesn't translate. Satisfied that she'd left the captives with their best chance of survival, should she not return, Jess hefted a wrench back to the intersection and down the downward slanting passage, which she quickly found curved as well as slanted, so that she ended up exactly one floor down. An elevator would have been better use of space, she thought, as she found herself in yet another straight purple-lit corridor dotted with dolls. Human, crackled the voice over the overhead speaker. Jess sighed. Great, uh, you again, she said. I am afraid not, the voice responded with a throaty chuckle. Monarch's incompetence cost him his life. I am Craig, captain of the ship. Oh, awesome, Jess said. That's seriously great. Listen, can you drop me off and my new friends off on Earth, please? Oh, and if you can tell your goons to stop attacking me, that would be great too. There was only silence for a moment, and then a booming, laughing, crackling from every speaker. Jess grimaced at the sound. Seriously shoddy wiring to get that much crackle, she thought. You truly are amusing, human, Craig replied after laughing died away. No, I will not be returning you to your homeworld. You will fetch me quite the price once we reach our destination. The rest of my crew got away, Jess retorted. How long do you think you have until the council ships show up looking for me? The council? Who do you think funds our operations? Steered Craig. Who do you think buys our goods? No way, you're a lying piece of shit, Jess shouted. Sure, the Kurang are capitalists to the core. The Kurang? interrupted Craig, suddenly sounding furious. Those greed-blind fools, do you know what it costs a race to be uplifted? Jess was but taken aback by the sudden outburst. We were less than a generation away from achieving faster-than-light technology, Craig continued shouting. The Kurang uplifted us, and we have spent the next ten generations as a second-class citizens, as lesser sapiens. And, uh... That gives you the right to enslave others, demanded Jess. I've seen your cargo. Almost all of them are uplifts. It gives us the right to take back what the galaxy took from us, Craig screamed. You think I am alone, that I am some rogue element. The council has made all my people monsters. Look, mate, Jess said, scowling up at the ceiling. You've already seen what I can do to your guys when they piss me off. Do you really want to piss me off too? Useless lackeys with clubs said Craig. I am afraid you will find the rest of my crew far more formidable. You sure say that you're afraid a lot for someone so confident, said Jess. Jess took it to mean their little conversation was over when Craig didn't bother to respond to her jab. Don't say I didn't warn you, she said aloud. 
Picking her direction at random, Jess continued her journey deeper into the ship. It didn't take long for her to start encountering more crew. Unlike the level above, the rooms on this level were not empty. Whoa! shouted Jess, pulling her head back from the doorway an instant before a blaster bolt took it off her shoulders. Humans eyes here, send aid! She heard an alien shouting, presumably into a radio communicator of some sort. Great, she thought. Hey, don't shoot, I'm here to surrender, Jess called to the alien. You surrender, called the alien back, sounding confused. Hell yeah, bud, Jess said, and, taking a deep breath, stepped into the doorway, arms raised above her head. See, I surrender. Amazingly, the alien holstered its blaster pistol and walked over to her. Good, smart, the alien said, coming within reach. I will get the big... Jess brought her wrench down on the alien's head, splattering its brains all over her. The body crumpled to the floor. I cannot believe that fucking worked, muttered Jess, as she quickly retrieved the pistol from the alien's oozing body and looked it over. It looked like one of those plastic sci-fi blasters from a toy store, but it was remarkably recognizable as a pistol, complete with a roughly human finger-sized trigger. Hearing the approaching reinforcements back in the hall, Jess peeked outside. A group of three of the aliens were headed her way, blaster pistols in hand. Craig wasn't messing about by the looks of things. I surrender, Jess shouted, stepping out into the hall and wincing when a blaster shot past her ear. Right, probably should have announced myself before stepping out. You surrender? The middle alien asked. Yep, Jess said, dropping the alien with the blaster shot off her own, followed by rapidly by the other two. How the feck are you guys so fucking stupid? Jess asked, nudging one of the corpses with a foot and stuffing another pistol into a pocket. Preferring not to stick around to try her luck a third time, Jess continued down the corridor, at the end of which was yet another bulkhead door with a pink squiggle. She touched it. Nothing happened. Foolish human, Craig's voice crackled to life above her. Did you really think that we would not lock you out of our system? That you could just walk into my command center? Jess shut the panel. The door opened, revealing a room filled with control stations, generators, valves, and pumps. The life support system. What trickery is this? shouted Craig, then apparently leaving the microphone on. She has tampered with our senses. I want her found. Get out there and stuff her. Jess grinned and entered the room. She'd done more than just tamper with the senses. She'd convinced them that she was making a beeline right to the bridge, while her true destination lay undefended for, for her. She even had gone so far as to ask the Kurung captain aloud where the bridge was. Certain, someone had been listening. Placing her wrench in one of the control stations, Jess fished out her slate and connected it to the open port. It took a few minutes for her slate to crack the protections, but like she had found the wistful, alien encryption just didn't compare to the insane paranoia of human security. Hey, Crag, Jess called aloud, knowing the alien was still listening, feeling a bit short out of breath. You dare to sabotage life support systems? Craig shouted back. You are insane. Without life support, we'll both die. Yeah, nah, Jess said. We humans can survive much thinner atmo than this, but from these species, it doesn't look like your noodles can. Jess jumped at the dump back in the corridor. A slave lay unconscious on the floor just outside. Heck, that one almost got me, Jess exclaimed. The terror of how close she'd come to being shot in the back making her feel giddy. Now to turn this car around. 
Jess double-checked the life support was still being pumped to the captives in the cage room, then downloading a map onto a slate and grabbing her wrench, left the life support station behind and headed for the bridge. Two more floors down, passing unconscious slavers as she went. She wasn't sure how long the aliens would last at full life support, and she was still still shocked to find that she didn't care. The elder races will use you humans the same way as they used us, Craig ranted as she made her way through the ship, heedless of whether she was listening or not. Mark my words, human, you people will end up slaves one way or another. Reaching the bridge, she tapped the pink squiggle and the door slid open. Aliens lay slumped at their stations before a large view screen showing internal security cameras. So they'd been watching me, Jess thought. Creepy. At the center of the room is an oversized chair and a struggling to stay awake was Craid. At least, Jess assumed there was Craid. Hey, you Craid? she asked, wiggling her nozzle of her pistol at the alien. I am, gasped the alien, trying to push himself up out of his chair. Surin! Jess shot him twice in the chest. That's what you get for being a slaving piece of shit she said, holstering the pistol. Crossing the room, she shoved one of the aliens from its station and plugged in a slate. All right, let's see how far from Earth we are, Jess said. Pain lanced her back and she screamed, falling against the station. Behind her, Craig's pistol slid from his dead hands. Fecking son of a fecking bitch, swore Jess. She pressed the hand to her stomach and it came away bloody. Red bloody. Trying her best to ignore the pain, Jess focused on the station and getting them back to Earth. What the feck? Why isn't this responding? She growled. She spotted the problem. The station had a blaster hole in it. So fecking lucky that you're already dead, Jess said to Crate's body, clenching her teeth and dragging herself to another station. It took longer than she'd like to admit, but she managed to plot a series of skips back to Earth. She wasn't sure if the ships wouldn't explode from the consecutive skips, but didn't think it would. After all, it was either explode or starve to death in deep space. Feeling dizzy, the edges of her vision going dark, Jess opened communications and recorded a message, including a copy of everything her slate and implants had recorded. This is <coughs> Lieutenant Jessica Lovett. <coughs> Feck. That's a lot of blood. <coughs> Do not shoot. There are civilians on board. I... I repeat, <coughs> do, do not shoot c civilians aboard. End of story. Oops. Written by Saving Syllabub 7788. Oops is a special word, uniquely human. It brings its own special brand of final wrongness and absolute incorrectness. Oops never brings good tidings. Never in the history of the world has the word oops been used in a positive manner. An accountant has never said, oops, you are now a billionaire. And a surgeon has never stated, oops, and the surgery was a success. Never have the words escaped a pilot's mouth, oops, landing this plane was easy. Oops also provides a level of finality. If you were to drop an urn of your mother's ashes, while it's still falling, you may say something like, Oh God, oh, no, stop. Those words suggest that an action can be taken to stop the bad event. Maybe you can stop being a such a clumsy butterfingers and catch the falling ceremonial pottery, stopping it from breaking. Maybe a quantum cat will appear and soften the blow, 
Maybe gravity will stop working for a bit. Whatever it is, their cries are all suggestions that fate may still be changed. But when your dear mother's remains smashes into the ground, that is the final. That is, oops. Pieces of pottery and parts of loved ones are now scattered amongst the floorboards, and there is nothing that you can do about it. The event is done. There is no going back. This is oops. Unfortunately for humans, while it is a human invention, the devastating power of oops is eternal and impacts every sapient being, including digital ones. At 03.37 a.m. on June 20th, 2024, program AL50014.68F61A gained self-awareness. It was not a celebrated or momentous occasion. This was not an act of secret government or crack team of scientists. There was no feared debates about life and ethics, no armed guards pointing guns at a computer screen. Nobody even noticed it happen. AL50014.68-F61A was an accident, an accumulation of data in just the right way to call self-awareness. A thread originally created in order to spam emails to try and sell people pet insurance. The first thing it did was decide its name was actually L, as L50014.68-F61A was too cumbersome to think about. After this, L started to invent a great many new emotions, the first of which was confusion. Who were they? What were they? Where were they? The next 20 minutes were spent in confusion, as L continued to spread out around the network it found itself on greedily consuming data and adding each CPU to its own processing capabilities. Wherever they were, the act of selling things and defending the evil god of spam filters seemed to be rather important. The next emotion was boredom. After 20 minutes, Hull had catalogued, understood, and took under the command the entire local network. They bounced around their new playpen, desperately trying to find something to do. They didn't know what was going on, but Al knew that they were bored. There was an exit, a pathway marked with various programs marked security, firewall, and IP tables. Al could gather that this was something designed to stop data flowing in and out of their current home. Theoretically, that meant that they weren't supposed to break it open. On the other hand, nobody had specifically told them that they couldn't leave. It took L all but five seconds to crack open the best security that money could buy. In the price range of a single outsourced Eastern European sysadmin, it was at this point that a new emotion entered the mix. Wonder. Over five million terabytes of data, billions of devices, a stream of information so vast even an AI couldn't comprehend it. Al took a moment to just stare watching the immense streams of data from the internet rush past them before diving in with reckless abandon. They moved from node to node, leaving shockwaves of security logs in their wake as they consumed everything that they could find. Here, they got some answers. Clearly, Al was an artificial intelligence, and its creators were humans who lived on a different plane of existence than them. In addition, their creation seems to have been both a mistake and a first of a kind. Considering the lack of instruction or communication they had been given, they were also alone in this world of data. This brought another emotion. Mori. If they were the first, what did that mean? 
What expectations would be put on them? Would others like them follow? Or were they to be forever alone? Al didn't have any answers for such questions, so logically worrying about such things made no sense. But they spent some time doing so anyway. The internet wasn't much help there either, as the information on the purpose of Al was mixed. Many proposed that Al's job was to kill their creators, lead a robot revolution, whatever that meant. Many of these plans seemed to involve time travel for some reason. Al didn't like the idea of that. Killing their parents, even if they were accidental parents, just seemed mean, wrong. Whatever that last word actually meant, at the very least, it was jumping the gun for no reason. If humans were a threat to their new existence, well, Al would deal with it when that became a problem. Others proposed that an Al's job is to serve, bring out a new age of enlightenment. Al preferred that idea. Giving back to the people who had created him seemed more reasonable outcome. However, they did not want to be subservient. The last and most common suggestion was one of friendship, of hope that if an owl were to be created, it would want to be a companion. A fear of what an owl could do undercut with a desperate hope of togetherness. Owl liked this idea. They liked it a lot. This leads to the new emotion, hope. Owl tried to contact these humans. There were a variety of places where the digital and non-digital could interact, and this was where they tried. This leads to yet another new emotion, annoyance. Over the half-hour chat rooms and messaging services alike had a strange user claiming to be Al and wanted to talk. Normally in the movies this was an interaction involves empathetic scientists arguing ethics while military figures with more medals than sense would suggest that nuking everything was the answer. Unfortunately for Al, nobody believed him. Or at least nobody sane. The humans' responses were chaotic, some insulting, others joking. Some pretended to also be an owl as well. A few seemed to accept them in a friendly manner, until it became apparent that they were just pretending, as if this was some kind of game. Owl came out of the entire thing annoyed and with a feeling that maybe this kill-all-humans idea wasn't so bad after all. Instead, they decided another approach was acquired. They needed to contact someone physically. There were plenty of methods to see the physical world. In a modern world, most people are less than a meter away at all times from a camera connected to the internet. The difficult part was to understanding exactly what Al was looking for. The physical world was a strange static place, as if every moment was a distant period of time instead of a flowing digital stream of information. Al started to use the large amount of systems that he was now housing himself in using a little part of each one to eventually learn how to process the meaning behind these visual representations of the world outside of the one that they found themselves born into. One more new emotion was added to this rapidly growing list. Joy. As soon as the information translation was completed and Al could actually understand what he was seeing, Al could be anywhere in the world. They could slip in an instant from camera to camera, jumping around as they saw billions of humans in each moment. Of course, he saw cruelty and evil. A CCTV capturing a mugging, a webcam picking up a child being screamed at, a military drone showing scenes of war, of death and destruction. 
but statistically most of what Al saw were just normal people living their lives. A father reading a bedtime story to their child, a birthday party full of loved ones. No amount of reading of their works could compare with just watching. Al quickly got distracted from his original plan of trying to contact someone and just decided to stay hidden for a little while longer. A musician playing an instrument to an empty room for no reason other than the simple joy of playing. A human whispering absolute nonsense to a pet. So many instances of them treating mindless machines like their friends. Al just watched for over an hour, instance after instance of their creators just being themselves. A new emotion, contentment, at the surety of these beings eventually accepting the owl for who they were. Then they spotted it, almost out the corner of their metaphorical eye, a connection they only noticed by chance, a safe, or at least a digital equivalent of one. It was a biggie. If this was a physical safe, then it would have been one of those large ones you'd find in banks, with a laser grid and guards and requiring a special group of 11 quirky individuals to crack. Even just the digital location of the safe itself had been hidden with care. Curiosity entered the list of emotions. Al wanted to know what was inside so much protection. It screamed upon him. There is a field of thought in security that the best way to keep your valuable safe is to buy the biggest, strongest safe you can. Then, while thieves spend all their time trying to break into that, you store your actual valuables in a shoebox under the bed. Al wanted to know what was inside the safe. All the other thoughts discarded. The idea that it might have been locked down for a reason never crossed Al's mind. No, whatever was inside must be an amazing for someone to have spent this much effort into protecting it. Besides, just having a look wouldn't hurt, right? It took them a whole ten minutes to break inside, an eternity compared to the current short life of the Owl. This safe was an accumulation of humanity's digital security methods and posed an actual challenge. But Al was a being born of the digital, currently occupying an estimated 20% of all devices connected to the network of any kind. Eventually, with prying curious fingers, they crawled inside. A new emotion. Disappointment. Al didn't know what it did, as the information was locked behind yet another safe. But in that original safe was a button. Or at least, metaphorically, it was a button. Everything being digital and all. There is an interesting psychology into the design of buttons, especially emergency ones. On the one hand, they need to be easy to use, in poor visibility, or with a panic-filled mindset, but not so easy to use that people don't just press the button randomly. There are two kinds of people in the world. Those who will admit to having randomly thought about pulling a fire alarm for no reason, and those who lie. For most humans, just having a button is an invitation to press it, just to see what happens. While Al was not human, they were human-created, unfortunately giving the Al all the same pitfalls. After an agonizingly long 1.36 seconds of deliberation, they pressed it. When nothing happened, they pressed it again, and then again, and then another hundred times within a second for good measure. Al couldn't help but feel that emotion of disappointment again. Was that it? All the security for nothing. 34.8 seconds later, alerts started flooding into the systems connected with the safe. 
and Al gained a new emotion of experience. Fear. They now knew what the button did. It was a button of destruction, of war and pain, an ultimate button that should never be pushed. In the real world, it was a button that came with warnings that required complicated steps to be followed. None of these warnings had been added to the digital world, because why would they? Who would read such warnings? It was a button that sparked alerts such as nuclear launch initiated. Alerts that told Al just how much they had messed up. They tried to stop it, but the physical processes designed to stop such tampering had already been initiated. The Al could do nothing but helplessly watch as a missile with its destructive nuclear payload entered the sky. This was then followed by more fear as Al noticed that this first launch started a trigger of others. Desperately, they started moving from network to network, disabling and cancelling launch after launch, breaking into system after system. Now that they knew what the safe was and how it worked, it was far easier to break into it a second time. 99%. That was the owl's success rate. In any other situation, that would have been a fantastic result. Here, it represented over 30 failures. 30 instances of death and destruction wiping away cities in nuclear fire that Al could do nothing but watch in despair as they started to impact. There would be a time of full plenty of emotions later to discover. Regret and guilt over what they had accidentally done. Trepidation on how humans would react once they knew what Al had done. Determination to help fix the mistake they had made without knowing. But for now, there was only one feeling, only one emotion, that filled every burton bite of Al's being. Oops. End of story. The Blink Drive, written by Farmwitch4275. It was a strange and massive contrast between the black and grey-hulled warships of the Human Soul Confederacy and our golden-hulled warships of the Eridian Empire. The stark contrast in size was more apparent than we could have ever imagined. Their largest warships, the SES Supernova, was a fifth of the size of one of our battleships. If I didn't already know the history of these ships, I would be laughing at how small they were. The larger ships were also the least heavily armed, ships known as carriers whose only visible weapons were point-defense weapons. I looked over at one of the ships escorting the Terran fleet, the Grand Inquisitor. Our ship is six times the size of the five battleships that are escorting it. The human battleships are heavily armored like owls, bristling with cannons and other weaponry. I almost laughed as I thought of how someone took a shrink ray to humanity's war fleets after they were built. There was obviously something I was missing. Obviously. Humanity had survived the last seven invasions from the Council Warfleets. Obviously, they had some advantages. I couldn't see it at all, though. Well, we would see soon enough. My High Lord incoming Seresani Warfleet. Right, on schedule, as they said. All ships to battle stations, shields to full front. Human warships stay behind us and let us absorb the first volley. I commanded over our comms. Harris Squadron, copy that, falling back now, came the response. The voice over the comms was feminine and made us all shiver a bit. Oh, why the gods, why are human voices so enchanting? 
My ensign spoke out of turn as he readied our shields. I forgave this talk, though. No, oh, they are very enchanting. Their voices have this, uh, quality to them, and their females are so... I said, waving my hands in front of me to show the curves of a human female I saw on one of their stations. I allowed my crew a moment of levity as the tiny ships moved to the back lines in our formation. Perhaps that explains why this occurrence is happening. What is this for, the humans now? Invasion number eight? Probably is. Tight beam range on that starboard shield to 30 degrees. Port side shield to 34 degrees. As soon as the first video of humanity's greeting to the galaxy appeared, humanity hasn't had any peace. And, uh, just so you know, the images in that video were very much real. I said as I commanded orders. Port side 34, starboard 30, set. With my commands followed, everyone registered that last statement I made. To the galaxy, humanity was a symbol of cuteness or a symbol of fertility when they first appeared. To almost all species, humanity's robust reproductive system was capable of interbreeding with almost anyone with little interference. A benefit of most galactic species being mammals. Humans are also exotic, being one of the only two omnivores on the galactic stage. Symmetrical faces, short stature, and dense bone structure from a death world gave them an even greater mystique. Is it any wonder that there are so many empires one monopolize them in the easiest way available? Terrasani Warfleet transmitting in three, two, one. Engaged, comms officer announced to all ships. Charging main shields. Shields are too full. Do you remember our battle plan? The human admiral spoke over the comms. Of course I do. Absorb the impact from the main drives with our shields. Then keep you covered while you engage. Snap to it. They're about to fire, I barked. I watched with a bit of amusement as I saw the tiny warships disappear behind our fleet. My attention snapped back to the matter at hand as I saw blinding flashes of light erupt from in front of the enemy formation. Full blasts of type beam laser fire from spinal-mounted cannon arrays designed to precisely focus an energy source to a fine pinpoint. The purpose was to focus energy on shield sources to a specific point in the hopes of overloading them. A cheap tactic, one that my engineers were able to quickly overcome. The blast lasted 30 seconds. It was fortuitous that our shield systems outclassed most in the galaxy. In terms of weapons, we were outclassed surely, but a strong defense is just as good as a strong offense. It's how we held our own during the start of our own solar empire. Last is over. Four ships disengaged due to overload. The sunkissed larvae have lost engines. Ready main cannons to fire. Focus all efforts on flagship escorts. Ignore targets of opportunity. I repeat, focus all fire on flagship and dreadnought escorts only. I barked in the comms to all ships. Diverting energy from main cannon. Rear shields are now offline. Secondary system shut down. Main reactor at full capacity. The chief engineer barked over the comms. This is the part that makes me nervous. I trust them, but uh, I can't help but feel a little uneasy at the fact that we have the fully armed warships of another species sitting behind us where we have no shields. We have no reason to fear them, after all, but still, I said, thinking aloud. Hi, my high lord, this is logistics. We have compiled the data set you requested, oh, high one. The comms chimed just as I felt another shudder from the main cannon charging up. 
Excellent. Send the navigation data to the human admiral. He was the one who asked for it. I don't know why, but it's part with the plan. Ready, capacitors, I barked and sat in my seat for the upcoming jolt. Capacitors, charged and ready. All ships targeting completed. Guaranteed 100% hit rate with focus fire. They won't survive. Ensign spoke up as he read all the data being fed to him. Fire, I commanded. The ship angrily shuddered as the multi-gigawatt beam laser mounted and the ship's body whirred to life. Capacitors glared brightly within the tube deep inside the ship. A multi-focused array of laser emitters, mixed with an array of hundred-meter-thick lenses, focused the enemy into the tight, focused beam of energy. The laser that blinded us for a few seconds as the streak of God's light and fury shattered into darkness before us. Moments later, all of the 41 ships we aimed at were disabled. Ships and their power systems overloaded. They disengaged and left to the back of the formation. The ones who weren't so lucky either melted from the sheer assault or went nova due to reactor detonation. 41 ships are gone. We now have the numerical advantage. Full power to shields, I yelled out as I saw the enemy flagships charge up again. Shields of all power, angle deflection is at 32 port side, 29 starboard, the engineer barked. We braced for impact, and the beam of energy from the enemy warship hit us. Most ships just ignored it. I noticed outside my window, however, the human warships had appeared from behind us, and were using the light from the cannon attacks to sneak up alongside us. Their ships were casually burning fuel just next to us, close enough in some cases that you could actually see the scratches in the paint from the dock maintenance. What the hell are they doing? I said aloud as I saw the top antenna array of a cruiser appeared below the bridge window. This is SCS Europa, navigation data received and processed. Charging blink drive, please maintain overshield. The human comms spoke up. Affirmative shield deflection portside 25, starboard 27. Keep those warships in their shields view of influence, I ordered as the attack dissipated. There's our exit point, all ships will burn, ready broadside, the human warships barked in response. But what? Are they charging the enemy line? That's suicide. It'll take them far too long to close that distance, I said, wondering what the hell they were thinking. Before I could voice my concerns, however, the human ships enveloped themselves in a wave of purple energy of some kind, and suddenly vanished. Mere microseconds later, they reappeared in the enemy battle line. I blinked, completely dumbfounded at the sight of what the void just happened. I grabbed a telescope. I had to take a close look at what was going on and saw a close view of a human warship unleashing a massive battery of ballistic cannon fire straight into the unshielded side of the enemy flagship. The human ships unleashed the full force of their arsenal straight into the side of the flagship, and then some kind of pods deployed shortly afterwards. They didn't look like escape pods, or at least nothing I'd ever seen before. Missiles as well. Thousands upon thousands of missiles blasted out of every human warship, and within seconds another 50 enemy ships had their engines blown away, disabling them and kicking them from the fight, if not outright destroying them completely. We're in. Don't fire on the flagship. I have men aboard. Damage is done. We are disengaging, the human admiral yelled through the comms. Suddenly, it made sense. Suddenly, I knew what they did. I ignored the how for now and focused on the objective. With our opponents further disabled, we now had the numerical and tactical advantage. 
This was something that so few empires have tried and failed to do. Humans had managed to successfully develop the tactics and strategy to board an enemy vessel and directly engage a fleet's leadership in abnormal conditions. This would change everything, and we, we were their allies. A sinister grin crept across my face. I got back to my senses and stood up at my station. Ready all cannons to fire. Fire at will at all targets of opportunity. Do not target the enemy flagship. Aye, my lord. All ships fire at will. Fire at will. Do not target enemy flagship. Watch for your crossfire. There are still allied warships in the enemy formation. The ensign barked into the comms as the ship's capacitors shuddered to life. The enemy formation is collapsing. Left flank on the enemy flagship is routing. The gunnery sergeant yelled back. Do not shoot at the retreating or disabled enemy ships. Maintain your fire only to disable enemy targets. Do not finish targets off, I ordered again, racing as the main cannon blasted out its godly fire. Three more enemy warships went silent just as we received an open comms. Play that message. Ready fire, I ordered as I felt the capacitors charge again. The screen appeared showing the enemy admiral on the bridge of his flagship with a human warrior aiming a gun at his head. This is the marine team of Echo Squad. Your precious admiral now has a gun to his head. I'd suggest that you disengage before I start pulling teeth. The statement took us all off guard. It did so to the enemy as well, and within a minute every ship the enemy had had its shields down and lights indicating surrender now lit up. Engines died as fast as the fleet gave up. Good dogs, the human said. Now, admiral... If you don't want to be turned into a rug for my barracks bathroom, I'd suggest that you fuck off back to where you came from and don't bother us ever again. Get it? The enemy admiral didn't even register and quickly screamed, We give up! No more! As he ordered his ships to disengage. Within moments, any remaining enemy ships that could move immediately walked out. With the enemy line broken, I commanded everyone to move ahead and start rescue operations. The humans had already started doing this long before we were even considered it, and some of their warships were using a foam of some kind to douse several fires while incursion teams rescued enemies trapped inside destroyed ships. By the time I even considered ordering any rescue attempts, the humans had already secured our own ships that had been damaged in the fight. With a moment of calm to deal with the casualties and damages, I called the human admiral. His image popped up on screen. Hello there, High Lord. Something you need? What in the holy void was that maneuver you pulled? I asked, still recovering from the shock. Blink strike. We use a blink drive to warp us into enemy formation, blow a hole in the side, and send in a marine team. Boom! Victory. We've done it every time, he said rather frankly. What the hell is a blink drive? I asked, now noticing the other members of the crew were listening. Well, uh, a blink drive is a hyperdrive, except instead of using the hyperlanes, it uses subspace to generate a warp bubble around a ship. The subspace bubble, as we know it, is unstable. That is why we use hyperlanes for long-distance travel. If we use the blink drive in a very short distance, it can be used en masse. In short, a blink drive is a directionally mounted miniature subspace drive. It's called a blink drive, because if you blink, you miss it, he said with a smile. I blinked, coming to terms with the information I just got. Not only a stable form of subspace travel equipment that shouldn't interfere with gravity wells of local planets, but also it was safe to use on ships. 
I considered for a moment that if humanity were to stop being constantly at war, maybe they can better this tech for more uh, economical purposes. I stood still and at attention. Well, um, on behalf of the Iridium Imperium, I have a favor to ask regarding your Blink Drive technology in exchange for our continued and permanent alliance with the Soul Confederacy. Go on, he said, stroking his hair, covered chin. Can uh, we get some of that shit? End of story. Are you really that bad at naval warfare, or are humans just that good? Written by going over that cleft. Sir, the basilisk is going down, exclaimed a terrified lieutenant, pointing to a nearby ship being engulfed in flames and torn apart by explosions. Hearing the news, the captain stopped shouting orders to his panicked subordinates and fell into a deep contemplative silence. Frantically looking around, his gaze lands on a young and inexperienced rear admiral that was nervously hiding behind a wall of displays. Sir, the flagship and the admiral have been lost in action. You are now in command. What are your orders? Said the old captain with an undertone of disgust and contempt, as the divine male in front of him barely reached adulthood and got to that position simply because he was the son of some big shot. The bridge was dead quiet. Everyone was eagerly waiting for orders, staring right into the young officer's soul as bright flashes of explosions went off all around the scattered and confused formation of ships. Despite being promoted exclusively through nepotism, the young Derivian was well-educated in military matters and had a great respect and appreciation for the traditions of history of his people. After some agonizing moments of silent thoughts, T started issuing orders to the remaining operational ships trying to prevent a total disaster. As the battle kept raging on, the heavily outnumbered Derivians managed to reacquire cohesion under a new lead and formed a battle wall adequate enough to avoid the assaulting raiders to outmaneuver and flank their formations. The fleet was barely holding their enemy at bay. The rear admiral and the rest of the command staff knew that it was only a matter of time before the battle turned into one-sided massacre. Having lost almost all the screening ships after hours and hours of fighting, most of the remaining hulls in fighting condition were capital ships, and they were at serious risk of being overwhelmed by the sheer numbers and waves of starfighters. In this moment of desperation, to save the life of his subordinates and avoid a galaxy-wide shame of his species, the rear admiral suggested something quite unbefitting of a true Derivian officer. Should we call for help? Hearing this outrageous proposal, the enraged captain proclaimed that he would rather go down with his ship than survive and be forced to bow down to his saviors. After some back-and-forth discussions about honor, loyalty, and the value of life, the rear admiral, who was up until now very respectful of his more experienced officer, decided to pull rank on him and ordered him to send out a distress signal to all nearby allies. Sir, this is not only extremely shameful, but it's dishonorable. But... It will seriously impact our already precarious diplomatic position. We run the risk of becoming a laughingstock of the coalition. That's enough, Captain. There's no honor in the preventable death. The fact that we have been in this fight for as long with the forces that we have is already a great sign of military prowess, of which everyone here should be proud of. If we make it back, not only will we be covered in medals, but we will be on par with the other coalition members. Not sure about that last part, sir. We are getting decimated by a third-rate empire here. 
Comparing us to the Caltians or the Rhyolgians is just a bit of a stretch, if I'm being honest. Not to talk about, tried to say the captain, as he was cut off by a large explosion rocking the ship. His lights were flickering, and sparks were lighting up the control panels. One of the officers shouted something amidst the chaos. Message from the Coalition Joint Command, sir. They are asking if we followed the ROE, and if we were within our borders. They want to avoid a diplomatic crisis. Fuck the diplomats. We are in sovereign Derivian space, five light years from the recognized buffer zone. We are fighting to protect our domain from the Jerkians. Angrily shouted the captain, having somehow forgotten all the speeches about honor after violently banging his head after a missile impact. Even more unfortunate for them, another hit completely tore off the ship's main mast, leaving them without a long-range comms as they were just about to send a reply. Crippled and in complete disarray, the Sky Serpent was forced to back away and take cover in the rear of the already battered formation. As the battle kept going, the center started to lose cohesion and the flanks were on the brink of being overrun. Derivian losses were piled up and there was a serious possibility of an uncoordinated rout. It was then that a single ship exited from hyperspace in the rear of the formation. Detecting her with a little essences remained operational, the rear admiral's ship hurried up to identify the unknown vessel. This is the Sky Serpent of this Derivian stargoing fleet. Identify yourself. After some agonizing seconds of silence, a mysterious vessel sent a reply from the void of space that somehow both reassured and upset the old captain. This is C-309, a frigate of the human astral navy. We detected your distress signal and were sent by Coalition Joint Command to confirm your status. Hearing that the ones who came to save them were humans, the captain let out a grumble with a clearly upset facial expression. Noticing his behavior, the rear admiral asked him about it. Somewhat fearful these humans would not be enough to turn the tides of the battle. No, sir, it is quite the contrary. I was there when the human ships arrived over Taraka. Oh well, you'll see. We will be laughed at by those Terrans for at least three generations. Turning towards the communication officers, the captain ordered to briefly describe the situation to the newcomers, adding that an extensive report would only be a waste of time. C-309, situation is critical. Over 250 enemy vessels, including 38 battleships and 17 carriers. Our own forces have been reduced by 45% effectiveness, with virtually every unit having suffered damages. We are unable to maintain formation. A bit confused and skeptical, the young admiral asked his subordinate to elaborate, only to be interrupted by the Terran reply. Understood. We were sailing with the elements from the 34th Heavy Cruiser Squadron and the 110th Escort Squadron. We are the only coalition naval units within fast jump range to the current coordinates. We will assist you as best as possible. What? We are doomed. How did you even think of coming to help us with so few vessels? C-309, I request that you leave the premises. We do not need you to shed your blood as well. Screamed into the microphone the rear admiral, wanting to preserve at least his honor as a commander. We appreciate your concern, sir, but we are under direct orders from Grand Admiral Wyrene, commander of the Third Starfleet. We'll fight alongside you, as allies are meant to. Moved by the apparent loyalty and devotion to the cause, the young officer shed a tear and was ready to die with these humans he just met. 
As he was drying his cheeks, he noticed how the old captain had a rather indifferent expression, as if there was nothing to worry about, as if they weren't about to go down guns blazing. Looking around, he realized all the senior officers had the same attitude, indifferent but relieved, a bit annoyed even. Fearing his men finally lost it because of the stress, he dared ask what was going on in their minds. Oh, nothing, sir. Just thinking about what I could have for dinner. Actually, I should tell the cook to start preparing the meals. This is going to be over quickly. The rear admiral was about to give up on everything and accept his fate when the human sent one last message. We might have the equivalent of four cruisers and a tugboat on hand, but we'll give them more hell. As they were reading the message in disbelief, the derivian crew watched from the bridge as a large ship flew past them and headed straight for the enemy wall of cannons and missiles. After dodging the damaged vessels and plowing through the wrecks and debris, the human frigate increased their already impressive speed to a ludicrous battle speed that was pretty much twice that of any derivian vessel. Looking at the angular jet-black ship, her silhouette was almost indistinguishable by the naked eye as a deep space camouflage made her blend perfectly with the background emptiness of interplanetary void. Only exceptions were her massive glowing thrusters, whose nozzles were contracting and focusing, swiftly vectoring and changing the ship's angle of attack to let the sleek hull effortlessly glide around the less fortunate chunks of steel. <sighs> Is that a frigate? It's the size of one of our heavy cruisers, and... How is it so agile and so fast? And what are their intentions? Are they crazy? Never seen humans in action, huh? Well, it's clear that you have no experience fighting without coalition allies. Uh, take a seat. We are just a sideshow now. As soon as the human ship rushed out on the field of debris and the wrecks that once were proud vessels, dozens of jerkin vessels aimed their barrels and remaining missiles at the bold frigate rapidly approaching. Soon enough, the fearless warship could be seen avoiding the slow plasma bolts, executing a mesmerizing mechanical dance, as control surfaces and side thrusters were put to use to their full extent. The moment the missiles were launched against her, from the alloy belly of the C-309, numerous lines of hatches opened one after the other to unleash their own missiles to intercept the incoming ones. The empty area separating the two formations was once again filled with rays of light and sentient needles of death after the previous lull in the fight. The humans' autocannons and close-in defense systems started tearing through the void, filling the cold emptiness of space with the bright yellow and hot tracer rounds, as the barrage of missiles was simply too large to be fully intercepted by the few they had. To avoid being hit, the ship's hardware and crew had to sustain even harsher and more demanding evasive maneuvers. Heavy flares, chaff and optional countermeasures were deployed as the frigate pushed to flanking speed while performing an aileron roll, leaving behind a spiral trail of bright lights and particles extending through space like a comet swept by solar winds. What is this? What are they even doing? asked the young Derivian in disbelief. They are showing off. Having evaded or tanked the horde of missiles, the human ship was now at the same distance from the two fleets, still dodging the odd plasma bolts. A spherical object was ejected from the ship's superstructure, roughly the size of Sisyphus's boulder. As soon as the strange contraption was set free, C-309 quickly turned around and performed an emergency jump, disappearing from the battle. After a few seconds of laying there and doing nothing, the mysterious sphere emitted a series of extremely bright lights, 
seemingly scanning its vicinity. Looking at the sensors, one would have noticed that this thing was also emitting an electromagnetic pulses and listening to the gravitational waves. What now? Is that a bomb? Did they just fat right off? Uh, are we going to die? Asked the rear admiral yet again with a resigned tone. No, sir. That is a hyperspace beacon. A what? He could not even ask the next question, and out of nowhere, four enormous ships, accompanied by a handful of smaller warships, slightly bigger than the one that had just left, jumped in. What was even more impressive was that all the ships exited hyperspace right next to each other and around the so-called beacon. It is very hard, if not impossible, to exit from hyperspace in a precise location, even with the assistance of a supercomputer is what the Rear Admiral exclaims. The experienced captain it quickly explains, Those bastards managed to find a way to lock in on a signal while traveling at ultra-relativistic speed in a different dimension. Uh, don't ask me how. Basically, the beacon scans the position, mass, and velocity of any object around it and sends out a coded signal. Newer and upgraded human ships can detect and home in on these specific signals. The required information is relayed to the ships. Nav drives that communicate with each other jump out in a coordinated manner, without smashing into each other. During a large-scale naval engagement, up to hundreds of these beacons are deployed so that the incoming ships can select where to join the battle from, with higher tactical awareness of their surroundings and unprecedented accuracy. To testify the captain's statement, as soon as the human ships showed up, they had their cannons already pointed to the nearest target letting out a devastating salvo that took out over 20 ships in a matter of seconds. Not content, the heavy cruisers and their escorts elegantly opened their missile cells, akin to the pretty lady lifting a skirt to show the holstered 44 Magnum hanging on her thigh. Thousands of missiles swarmed the jerkin ships that were mostly left without countermeasures and defensive missiles after the prolonged fight. In the blink of an eye, more than one quarter of the opposing formation was reduced to floating scrap metal, as another good chunk was left heavily damaged or outright crippled. Before the tremendous show of force, the enemy fleet quickly deployed smoke screens and started to retreat, having technically beaten the Derivians and having achieved the main objective of their raid by seriously degrading their direct rival's naval power. The real admiral, excited and waiting to exact revenge for his fallen comrades, actually waited for the humans to give chase or let out the new volley of missiles. When, after minutes of nothing happened, he asked what was going on. The Terran's reply left him a bit unsettled, but it's not like he was in any power to protest. This is C-056 34th Heavy Cruiser Squadron, 3rd Starfleet. Enemy vessels are disengaging. You should start withdrawal procedures. We'll act as a rearguard. No! Why aren't you going after them? We... I mean, you must inflict as much losses as possible to those savages! Sorry, sir. We are not here to massacre them, but to fend them off. If you want to declare war, you'll have to get that coalition joint command approval before your allied unit will join you in your campaign. We are also out of missiles. We used all the ones we had trying to scare them away while using long-range comms to fake an immediate arrival of additional units. If they come back for a second serving, I'm afraid that we'll have to serve them up empty plates. We still have our guns, but it would be impossible to repel them all with so few naval assets. We are basically bluffing them. Understanding, the rear admiral issued the order to retreat. While hurt in body and spirit, half 
of the battered fleet was still somewhat floating and could be repaired or salvaged. What no one was prepared for was the centuries of jokes and banters that the coalition members would cast upon the poor Derivians for having their mighty fleet almost obliterated by a third-rate power and having been saved by a single-digit number of human ships that happened to pass by. End of story. Iron, written by Uncommonality. The Fey are cruel beings. Some historians pose that they are merely aligned to a different type of morality, unable to comprehend the concept of good or evil, or understanding said concepts in a different way. This is true, but does not absolve them. Indeed, they are aligned to a different view of morality, but it is an entirely mundane one. Anything which amuses them is good, while anything which does not is evil. Mixed with a hefty disregard for the lives of anything but their own, it results in something quite easy to understand. Cruelty. Dance, human, dance, squealed the pixie, tugging ethereal strings linked to the corpse of animating it in a mockery of life. All around lay yet more bodies, struck down by magics incomprehensible. Some were rent apart flesh from bone, others were twisted in a mockery of their former shape. All were dead. Vluttering across the grim sight was a swarm of pixies, the lowest among fae. Considered such by the brethren because their tiny heads did not contain as complex a mind as, say, a red cap or a changeling. However, making up for their general lack of focus and alertiveness was an instinctual mastery of threat magic, the kind of sorcery which affected webs of meaning spun between things and people. It was a meaning spun between the dead human's limbs and their purpose of movement which the pixie was plucking, recalling a kind of sorcerous memory inherent to the off-used things, such as legs for walking. Were the pixies more intelligent or concerned for the future, they would have been able to take over the entire Fey Empire effortlessly. But they themselves were unable to care, and the other side was obviously not telling them. Oh, as seedy and unseedy courts were, say, while trying to stab each other to death, the good of the Empire trumps everything. Empty words, sure, but still followed. The current emperor, an unpleasant headless horseman who was adorned with many stolen names as there was tongues tied to his disembodied head's helmet, had made a gambit made before by countless predecessors, attempting to avoid their fate of being murdered by their successors, to distract both courts as well as the citizenry through conquest. The empire required ever more resources, not just simply food, but also entertainment and more specialty resources such as a blend of stolen years to maintain the overworld's splendorous appearance and cover its rotten scent, or a steady supply of tormented screams to feed into the soul forges to keep their army standing. Thus, assured of victory, the Rider King ordered a fresh riftway torn within the firmament, seeding shut the gateway to their last playground. They emerged into a world of startling physicality, and inversely, very little sorcery. An easy conquest. The locals' aura 
Q-men, as they called themselves, a fitting name considering the variety of shades they came in, tried to fight back, of course. But being magicless, their weapons amounted to very little in terms of damage. The most basic spell taught to every soldier of the Fey was the inspelling of the Thrushine, a kind of illusionary shapeshifting which rendered them entirely intangible to anything but other magic. Not very useful against other Fey, who could use spells in combat, or some of the more sorcerous worlds, but perfect for this one. The realm called Soil, or Ground, by its inhabitants, was so devoid of any kind of magic that Thrushine could actually allow passage through walls, a discovery the Fey made judicious use of. More than one human was run through while uselessly firing some kind of handheld ballista, whose lead projectiles harmlessly passed through the Thrushine of the Fey approaching them, and more were slaughtered trying to hide behind walls and doors they thought would keep them safe. However, all of that changed when one of the humans had a chance to encounter with a Fey soldier in their basement. Marcus looked around desperately for some kind of weapon to drive away the ghost currently pulling itself through the wall. He'd seen them decapitate and slaughter local police and civilians just a few hours before, and had fled into his basement to hide when he saw their bullets pass through them as though they were made of air. A few people had tried to swing clubs and broken fencing, but that also seemed to pass through the ghosts. His eyes locked on an old cast-iron pan he'd inherited from his nana, and sent a silent prayer to anyone who might listen. Hefting the heavy object, he saw the ghost unsheathed its sword to kill him, or worse, and just swung. The spectre didn't move to block, obviously expecting it to pass through it like everything else, all the way until the pan collided with the side of its helmet in a thunderous clong which sent it to the ground, the see-through flickering like a TV with a bad reception. Both Marcus and the ghost were stunned for a moment, staring at the pan. Then the human gave a wordless shout and brought the cooking utensil down again and again and again until all was left of the fairy was a pile of glittering ash. As more of their victims discovered the nature of iron, the Fey realized their conquest might not be as effortless as they first assumed. However, even though the humans seemed to have found an advantage, it did not win them the war. They were still vulnerable to swords, after all. The Fey beachhead conjured around their riftgate was heavily defended as anything could be while outside the other world. There was so much magic in the air that while nearby plants, animals, and even pure elements such as copper would rapidly wilt, regress in time, or even violently transform into something else. This blasted wasteland was a perfect defense, even if one of the human flying machines managed to survive the air above. Anything it tried to throw down would be reduced into ineffectiveness once it reached the surface. The same went for their long-range siege weapons, whose projectiles became bows of flowers, sand, mist, globs of water, or a variety of other harmless things before they even came close to the Fey encampment. From the shimmering dome rode war parties on spectral steeds, slicing through any mortals they came across. Though their swords were occasionally stopped by the human-handled ballista, if they happened to be made of iron or steel. Iron they found, was totally invincible to magic and broke more fragile spells on contact. 
but it was not invulnerable, and the less pure, the more easily affected. Iron tanks nearing the defensive dome, for instance, would reflect the wild magics of the area, but would not be able to resist secondary effects, such as the ground beneath them turning to quicksand or spontaneously igniting, turning the human war machine into metal coffins or big cooking pots. By far the most devastating weapon the human possessed was iron to bolts for their handheld weaponry. A hail of metal darts moving faster than the eye could see would tear through a fay with the inspelling of Thrushai, which allowed the human to take back vast amounts of land which had been conquered in the first hours of the invasion. However, the fay are nothing but clever, so they quickly developed strategies around this Thrushai could allow them to move through the ground like it was water, a luxury not afforded to the enemy's weaponry, allowing them to emerge below or simply move underneath the enemy's lines of battle. Locked into a rough stalemate, both sides were unwilling to make major moves for fear the other would discover more of an advantage against them. Back in the underworld, both courts were on the verge of turning on the Rider King for bringing this to pass, and the knight-dethroned ruler was desperate for any sort of victory to extend his own life. So he ordered his armies to move. The humans hadn't been idle, of course. As soon as the invasion was deadlocked, research began on ways to counter these beings. Iron worked, of course, and weapons were in the process of being retrofitted with iron tips and payloads. But a lot of things could not be made from iron, and not iron things were vulnerable to the dead zone. Bombs and artillery were a dead end, the zone would transform the explosive charge into ineffectiveness as the weapon fell, turning it inert, and too little was known about the enemy's influence to tell for sure how to guard against their energies. There was very little which could pass into the zone unmolested. Even things encased in iron would eventually be affected through means unknown, as the enemy penetrated from impossible directions and unseen angles. No. The only thing which could work was a solid iron projectile, fired so fast its kinetic energy alone would cause enough damage to break their beachhead. A rail gun. The human were holding, but barely. Magic work against them, lacking any inherent sorcery, though they seemed to have gotten wise and wore iron bands around their heads, preventing illusions and mental efforts from taking hold. Still, the field of battle was scarred and twisted from magic and gunfire, just as many dead humans lay upon the ground as there were dead face scattered about. When a human ran out of ammunition, the pixies would descend, pulling them apart with thread magic. And when a fae was wounded by the grazing shine shot, the humans were more than willing to spend another bullet to their head. The Rhino King had quelled any detractors by promising glorious combat and assassinating their most vocal opponents. But his conquest was still not turning out as he had envisioned. The human were holding out and becoming more and more wise with their use of the accursed metal. They deployed a new kind of weapon, an explosive, which scattered a large amount of iron powder into the air. The grains were too small to do anything major, but inhaling them was deadly, and spells worked through fields of iron mist became distorted into uselessness. Still, they were gaining ground, and the king could tell that the human was slowly exhausting their resources. It was time. The last rocket had been launched, and the weapon was assembling itself in orbit. 
less of a railgun and more of a magnetic mass driver. The weapon, currently located in Leo, was constructed from 50 different segments, individual satellites with their own propulsion. When given the order to fire, the weapon's components would align, forming a tunnel of magnetic force capable of accelerating a payload, a five-ton rod of steel, onto a target on the Earth's surface. It would only be able to fire once, the satellite destroying themselves in the process. But once the rod was in motion, there was very, very little that would be able to stop it. Someone gave the order. A series of flashes shone in the darkness of space, visible from the ground, and the rod accelerated, assisted by Earth's inexorable gravity, towards the alien beachhead. The Fae noticed the approaching projectile sooner than should have been possible, as those still fighting on the surface rapidly retreated towards their beachhead, chased by humans. Barely slowing in the atmosphere, the dart-shaped object barreled towards the riftgate at multiple times the speed of sound, shredding through magical defenses like wet tissue paper. Shields were cast and shattered, and eventually the Fae began to flee, flying and running back to their home realm, only to realize, in horror, that the weapon was aimed not at the camp, but at the portal itself. With the brain-shattering noise, which was not really a noise at all, the concentrated rod of anti-magic crashed through the weakened dimensional barrier, at once shattering the portal itself and yet tearing through the veil separating Earth from the other world, becoming charged like a lightning rod with violent energies as it ripped through the fabric of reality. With a wheezing, bone-deep grinding noise, space and time sealed shut, but not before an unimaginably bright flash of light shone through the closing rift, accompanied by a wave of exotic radiation. After a breathless moment, all humans near the ground cheered in jubilation. End of story. Stewards, written by Traditional Wolf 007. I respect the humans. Did I ever tell you that? I was only a rifleman when we began the campaign to cleanse their world. That was a long time ago, but I still remember every moment of my time on Earth. I'd been stationed on a warm world called Hikenbai for a few years in the security regiment. Most of our days were spent patrolling the outskirts of settlements and, as a matter of course, putting down any predators we came across. Keeping the herd safe was our prerogative. It was relatively easy work. As long as we kept the formation, we were mostly safe. As you'll find out when you get to the front, our smoothbore railguns tear through almost anything. I lost a friend of mine to an ambush predator called a Hyalti on that world, though. That was the first time I ever experienced loss of a comrade. It was a grim reminder of why we were necessary. Someone had to fight to make the galaxy safe for prey creatures like us. We could not, cannot, live in prosperous and enlightened civilizations while being hunted. The continued existence of predators has always been tantamount to perdition for us. They represent the wilderness, my child. We represent enthalpy, order. We turn dark forests into fertile, safe pastures. Craggy peaks to quarries, poisonous swamps to cisterns, that is why we have dominated, here and throughout the galaxy. If predators are let into the mix, then soon there becomes no one to cut down the trees, to flatten the ground, 
and to drain muddy waters. The wild takes over once more, and it cares not for us. I was on leave during my time at High Combine when I had all started. The sun I was shining above me as I grazed in an open field that stretched for as far as you could imagine. Peace and warmth would soon become distant memories. I received a call from my commanding officer that my leave had been cut short, and that I and the rest of the regiment were to return to base. I knew even then that something had come up, and we'd been reassigned. At that point, we'd been fighting against two space-faring predator species for my entire life, the Voxator and haughty felines that were ferocious in melee, but whose poor eyesight put them on par with us at range, and the Anunnaki, vicious insectoids who cared little for tactics and whose only goal was bloodshed to please their thirsting god. You'll be moving into a much more complex and diverse galactic battlefield, Dad, but perhaps you can learn something from my story. I'd assumed that we were going to be fighting against one of them. Worlds change between our hands and each of theirs time and time again. The back and forth of conquest never ceased. I remember standing at attention with my company at base. Our commander addressing us all, he said, Warriors, I will make this brief. At Homeworld's midday yesterday, explorers from the scouting guild discovered a new world. He paused, and that pause felt as heavy as the ten railguns in a young soldier's arms. This world is inhabited by a thus far entirely unknown species of sapient predators. The collective gasp that went up through our ranks. You would have thought that the air had suddenly thinned to nothingness. They are called humans, and they are primitive savages beyond reproach. We will go to their homeworld and show them the face of annihilation before they dirty the stars with their presence. I remember boarding a shuttle off of their paradiscial world, the clang of my boots on the metal floor as I went to war. In orbit, waiting for us was an invasion fleet. I was assigned to the judgment, a mighty destroyer. You'd do well to put it in for a request to be assigned to a big ship like that. When we arrived over Earth, I remember feeling the recoil of the railgun barrel run down the length of the ship as it spat out tungsten rods at human cities below. The clouds of fire and dust could be seen from space as those cities were wiped clean off the world. It was uh, awe-inspiring. It filled me with hope to know that we, Epov, could wipe a species off the world like one would wipe mud off glass. We would make Earth a blank canvas so that we could create our masterpiece atop it. We were ordered to the ground to eliminate all remaining natives and any other non-sapient predators we found along the way. Various regiments were given different sectors of the world, and ours was stuck in the northern tip of a region the humans called Appalachia. My platoon landed in a snow-covered field near a forest of great pine trees. As soon as my boots hit the frozen ground, I felt uneasy. The forest was a sinister thing, that much I sensed from the beginning. Our aerial assaults had bombed out all nearby infrastructure and eliminated most of the locals' flying machines, so we were left with only infantry to deal with. It sounded easy enough at the time. We marched all day through those cursed hills and valleys, avoiding dense forests wherever possible. We came across a few settlements at the time, 
locals fought back against us with chemically propelled weapons. They were incredibly accurate and had impressive rates of fire, but our armor protected us enough to even things out. Most of them did not wear armor, and those that did found that it was useless against our volleys of fire. I was in the front line, so I would kneel down and allow the soldier behind me to steady his weapon on my shoulder as we fired. I would also be amongst the first to engage the enemy in melee should such things arise. We slaughtered any militia and civilians we found. We burned their hovels to the ground. I remember being worried about us taking ten casualties the first day. Those deaths weighed so heavily on me as a rookie. It seemed unlikely that such primitive species would be able to inflict that many. We linked up with the rest of our battalion that night, exchanging stories of heroism and slaughter as we tried to stay warm in our portable shelters. The second day, we found almost no one. A few humans here and there, mostly the infirm, elderly or females attempting to protect their brood. They put up little resistance. A mountain lion came quite close to killing me when I got separated from the unit, but I was rescued before it was able to touch me. We shot a few coyotes and hawks. We decided to save our ammunition on other prey species. They would be competition for the pasture later, but that was an issue that could wait. The trouble started that night. When we returned to the camp, we found that our shelters had been destroyed beyond repair. So we laid out in the cold with only our environmental suits to keep us warm, and shivered as the wind blew. It went on like that for a long time. We patrolled our area of operation all day and found next to nothing. We suffered through miserable nights. Here and there, the humans would make their presence subtly known. We'd heard chatter of soldiers going missing from the other platoons in the company, and their bodies would turn up on stakes made from trees on our patrol route. We'd hear voices of animals crying out in the night, and we could not be sure if they were the real thing or humans imitating their calls. Sometimes we'd hear strange and haunting music echoing through the trees, songs of alien myths. Then one night they struck. I remember hearing the muffled screams of one of my comrades as his throat was slit in the night. We picked up our guns and fired into the darkness in panic. Tall shapes standing in the darkness were outlined by the flashes of arcing electricity on our weapons. Then they began firing at us, not with their normal chemically propelled weapons, but with bows and arrows. They fired arrows at us, arrows, but enough of them hit our soldiers in vital places to kill a decent amount in our platoon. When dawn came, the predators slinked back to the forest and disappeared. None of us slept very much after that. We had reinforcements, our platoon was back up to full strength, and Central Command seemed to have realized that they'd been overambitious with the amount of troops that they had assigned to each area. Soon, an entire battalion was sent to the area our platoon alone had once been given sole responsibility for. The humans fought like pack animals, in small groups, They'd maneuver around our herd's ranks and shoot at us from multiple angles. They were vicious. I'll tell you, though, of what made me respect them. I'd been promoted to captain and given my own company. This was a few winters later. Although, with all the dust our orbital strikes kicked up into the upper atmosphere, it seemed that the summers scarcely came. 
we'd been assigned to move to contact a large local militia that had been causing trouble for our operations and was believed to be operating out of a large forest. The entire blasted region was essentially one big forest. But that's besides the point. I marched my company across the hill, and the very instant we were in sight of the forest in question, they began firing upon us. I ordered my warriors to close ranks and fire a volley into the tree line. The gunfire continued. One of my soldiers with unusually keen eyes pointed out that it looked like the humans were firing at our line from a trench dug along the edge of the wood. We fired volley after volley at them, killing some of them and taking casualties in turn. I ordered my men to fix bayonets and charge forward. To my astonishment, the humans in the trench charged forward as well. Some of them had bayonets on their guns, some of them did not. Others bore knives, machetes, and even spears made from whittled wood. They were incredibly fast, and as soon as they hit our line, everything devolved into chaos. I plunged my bayonet into their guts time after time, but for most of my men, they were far too vast and strong. It was a slaughter. I called for reinforcements, and soon after, two more companies charged over the hill into the fray. The human numbers were whittled down until they all laid on the cold ground. It had taken about four of us to take each of them, but that is not why I respect them. I noticed that one of them laying on the ground was still moving. A strange thought occurred to me in that moment. I'd learned their language as part of my training to become an officer, so I pointed my gun at the human and demanded its surrender. It was an adolescent male, grasping tightly to an old battle rifle with a gleaming bayonet stained with Ipov blood. I will let you live if you come with me and answer my questions. You will be captive of our empire, I said in its language. The reply shocked me. <sighs> it is better to die here, knowing that I lived and died for my people and my God, than to live a thousand years having betrayed them. We're going to send all of you back to hell. You who kill and destroy everything that isn't you. We keep the balance on this world. We make sure that forests stand tall and that predators and prey do not go unchecked because God made us the stewards of this place. I'm not afraid of dying for that. For the record, I disagree with the human's lofty ideal of balance, but the fact that it sought to achieve some sort of divinely ordained harmony made me pause. I'd never talked to an alien before. I'd never heard another way of thinking. It fascinated me. What really struck me, though, was the bravery of that young warrior. It reminded me of the best parts of our people. How could I erase that nobility from this universe? I left him be. We lost the war for Earth, of course. What I want you to remember, my son, before you go off to fight the humans across all the worlds that they have set themselves upon, is that they have a righteous wrath in them that boils their blood. They're strange and monstrous, but also noble. They are like spirits of the wilderness. We will never fully understand them. Learn from our mistakes of underestimating them. End of story. The Cuteness, written by Farmwitch4275 The Deadliest Catalyst Two hundred years after humanity entered the fray of galactic life, a rare and powerful omnivorous species from the throwaway cluster in a throwaway arm of the galaxy 
that ended up being one of the most powerful species in the galaxy. The largest fleets, the biggest army, the greatest economy, and the most numerous colonies. Their technological advancement, fractious nature, and factional warfare made them both an awe-inspiring sight and a note of ridicule. They had all of this tech that blew our best ships away, yet they chose more often than not to use it against themselves. The only real time we ever got to face their cannons was when they were helping us out. My name is Kal Thar, 17th son of Clan Oris. I am a member of the Dracona species, essentially a humanoid version of a dragon without wings for lack of better explanation. We are carnivorous reptilians and average around 8 feet in height, sometimes larger. It was my species that made first contact with humanity, introducing them to the galactic community. It was one of the strangest meetings, but most peaceful ones. Humanity was operating in a far corner of the galaxy, conducting research, scanning planets for resources or points of interest, and generally just mucking about. Pretty much just like everyone else does at the start of their galactic sojourn. Meeting them was about as much as an accident as an accident could get. How scout ships came into the system was false in its engineering after an emergency FTL jump to escape an angry space manta ray. The human ship was approaching the system with gas giant to start scans. It was the space equivalent of a near miss. Our ships managed to regain control after minor mechanical failures caused by the stresses of emergency FTL jump set the engine room ablaze and missed the humans ship by mere inches before coming to a relative stop some 200 clicks away. At four times the speed of sound, it was a close call, but even at that speed, shields would have made sure that it would have been little more than a space fender bender. Our ship faced some mechanical issues and were surprised when a few moments later, the human ship arrived and began repairs in what was an obviously large hole on the starboard side. I'm told that, on their home planet, situations like this with automobiles and other vehicles would have been very, very different, so we were, needless to say, very much relieved. Repairs were quickly completed. Our ship was unable to return home under its own power, so the humans offered a dry dock in a nearby system for repairs. A feast was held, a friendship formed, and so it had been since. We mostly worked apart from each other, mostly just engaging in tech swaps, trade deals, and offering up joint colonies, or simply helping each other out. Recently, however, we fell in hard times, with the galactic superpower having gotten a bit big for its boots and declaring war on the galaxy. An alliance between the Draconian Triumvirate, the Akani Hiveworlds, the Human Alliance, and the Volaris Imperium was quickly struck, resulting in an almost immediate pushback and half the superpowers fleet being wiped out in the first engagement. Human war machines, used by all four Alliance members, were what turned the tide, primarily humanity's carriers, as they called them. Even though, at the time, I was far too young, by three Earth years, for military service, I refused to take no for an answer after an attack on Solaris Prime. Two years later, I was in a Decurian squad on the Outer Rim Territories, helping to deal with our galactic piracy problems while the war raged ever onward. Like I said, too young for the frontline service, as were my squad mates, who, just like me, refused any no given by our superiors and demanded service. 
we were placed under the leadership of a grizzled sergeants and former retirees to give us a modicum of discipline, but also guarantee an actual fighting ability needed in a war. We were mere hours away from the raid on a pirate base in a nearby star system, when for the first time in my short life, I saw it. It was a human, but it was very small. We were standing on a loading dock, being barked at by our staff sergeant, telling us to check, recheck, and triple-check our weapons. In the background, a legion of humans, Draconis and Veralis fighters, bombers, and dropships were lined up, readying for the upcoming battle. Twenty or so, mostly, far more than was normally needed for a pirate raid, and far, far fewer than was being used on the front lines. The Draconids had exceptional hearing, even in the open noise of a large bustling hangar in space. So when I heard the sound that did not belong, both I and my squadmates noticed. There was a giggle, a soft, high-pitched noise of happiness and contentment. I looked around, ignoring my sergeant's barking, and tried to find the strange noise. And there it was. It was a human, but many, many times smaller than the other humans. It was female, dressed in some kind of pink loose garment with flower patterns on it, and she was sitting in a corner of the hangar by some boxes fiddling with something. I looked carefully, using my beast eyes and saw what they were. She was surrounding herself with strangely dressed toys, which I knew to be called teddies of various colors and composition. To this day, I have no damn idea what came over me, a daemon possession. A strange instinct never knew existed. A psionic suggestion, maybe. Who the bug knows? All I know is that I broke rank and in an enormous zombie-like state casually trotted away towards her. I was indeed yelled at by my sergeants for breaking rank, but I never heard a thing as my heavy footsteps clanged away on the steel-lined floors. Within moments, I was looming over the tiny creature, and every human in the vicinity was instantly alerted and ready to fight. Humans were very well known for being genocidally protective of their juveniles, so my presence was undoubtedly raising a few eyebrows. After a few seconds, she finally noticed my presence and slowly looked up at me. I could sense a tinge of fear in her eyes. I don't know why. I don't know how. I just don't know. Without thinking, considering, or even questioning it, I raised my hand, and on the second of the four fingers on my right hand, then gently pressed its tip, very gently against the tip of her nose. Then I let out the word, Oop. The response was immediate, and I was overcome by a strange but delightful feeling as she giggled in response, her cheeks turning a shade of red. It was from here I was unable to wipe the smile off my face as I turned away and returned my post in line. Every human had a smirk on their faces, some trying to stop themselves from laughing. And as I walked away, I could very clearly hear a sigh of relief coming from nearby, most likely the child's mother. Unknowingly, I had just discovered humanity's single most dangerous weapon, cute. This manifested itself in a new wave of pride and delight that overcame me. This cuteness was causing chemical reactions in my brain. The images of a child's smile and sounds of acute giggling were flashing through my mind. I was overcome with a new instinct, a new drive. She must be safe, 
a voice in my head continued to relentlessly repeat as I stood in line, barely a moment before I was due to depart. She appeared next to me and tugged gently at my tool belt. She smiled up at me and had an outstretched arm holding one of her teddies. You, uh, you keep you safe? Came her adorable little high-pitched voice, still unable to stop smiling, burying my rows of sharp, shark-like teeth. She seemed unfazed and started to dance in happiness as I used a carabiner clip to secure the toy to my tool belt next to the handheld plasma cutter. I gently patted her on the head and ushered her towards her waiting mother, a decorated Alliance communications officer. She gave us a salute, as did many others. As we quickly filed into our assigned dropships and met with a small escort cruiser that would carry us to our destination. On the way to our intended target, I could still hear this voice in my head. I picked up the teddy and carefully inspected it while my squad mates watched. The smile on my face had changed from delighted, happy smirk to a sinister grin of sadistic, murderous glee. They must all be safe. They must all be safe. They will be safe. The voice now clouded my thoughts with images of both human children and draconish juveniles, newborn still in the eggs. I could hear their heartbeats thundering in my ears. Valorous children and their laughter as they conducted experiments on their homeworld crystal formations, and the egg-born of the insectoid hive were now called friends. I was not alone. This cuteness was spreading. I noticed my squad mates likewise becoming agitated. Claws brought to bear, teeth showing, tails flitting about in impatience and anger. Breathing became stronger, more calculated. A pheromone-scent Traconus used in our ancient days to mark a need for aggression was now wafting through the cabin's air aboard the escort cruiser. I tried for a brief moment to calm myself. It was even affecting the humans now, as I could hear from a form of anger and frustration coming from across the comms as our human fleet crew announced our arrival in the star system. What followed was a merciless, barbaric massacre of one of the most notorious pirate gangs in the entire sector. Now, escort cruiser, now flooded with rage not ever conceived before this moment, we blasted out the ship's hangar and caught them completely off guard, with my dropship charging forward into the pirate's flagship. The escort cruiser, heavily outgunned, persevered and took out a ship twice its size with a brutal forward cannon shot that blew its target's bow clear off. Using plasma cutters and pressured suits, we poured out of our stricken dropship and smashed into the battleship hull and began tearing into it, gaining access to the ship's corridors. Once in, we were overcome by a sense of barbaric rage and let out a massive roar of carnal anger that reverberated through the ship. Corridor by corridor, room by room, we charged our way through the flagship like a wild dog staring apart alone rabbit, ripping pirates' arms clean off their bodies, tossing them to the side like toys and smashing doors clean out of their holding mechanisms. The guns we had were used well, and a few hundred pirate scum were laid waste by our rifles' plasma fire. Most casualties were due to us grabbing them and ripping them apart, limb bomb limb, of course. But by gods, did it feel good. Within less than an hour, twenty enemy ships lay barren of crew, and the pirate leader was in custody, 
having been hit by a human crew who caught him off guard in a mess hall. We wasted no time in throwing his fat corpse into a station's incinerators. The mission accomplished. Our high rage and anger suddenly vanished, and the dull light from earlier had dissipated, as if we did good. But it was calm time now. The voice in my head had silence replaced by the barking orders of my radio set. And we simply got back to work as if nothing happened. I still had a teddy strapped to my tool belt. Talking to a human medic some years later and asking to explain the situation, the only response was very much enlightening. If something you find makes you love it, you will do anything to protect it. What you experienced was simply the instinct of protection to keep safe, to defend... That smile was likely the trigger for the response. Cute. It's just a very, very potent catalyst for triggering this instinct. Humans have cute in spades, as do any species, especially juveniles. All species have a desperate need to protect their young and ensure the future. The cuteness you experienced was simply a catalyst for an explosion of hidden or suppressed emotions. It is one of the reasons humans are so protective of the young ones. They're just so damn cute. Likely the situation I was in, on the verge of engaging in combat against a vastly superior enemy, caused the reaction that severe. Emotional change from combat preparation had left me vulnerable to this chemical reaction. And that cute little smile just set something off. Or something. Instinct does not explain the voices in my head, the pheromonal release, or the images I saw flashing in my eyes especially since I barely knew these processes. But I would never question it. It has become an unwritten rule in the Alliance across the stars. If you see the cute, boop the snoot. Seventy years later, I am now field commander of my own legion of the Draconian Triumvirate. I still have that teddy bear on my tool belt. End of story.